Curling up with various genres of good books is a favorite pastime for a lot of homeschoolers. And our guest today is here to share one of her passions, an avid reader and author with a passion for great stories. Eleanor Nicholson is here to tell us why gothic novels can be good literature. Welcome to Homeschooling Saints, the podcast that helps you create the homeschool you love for the people you love. Our host is Lisa Maladnik, a Catholic life coach, TV host, best-selling author, and an instructor at Homeschool Connections. Hello and welcome. I'm Lisa Maladnik, your host. Our guest today is Eleanor Nicholson, here to tell us about how gothic novels can be good literature. Eleanor Borg Nicholson, the resident Victorian literature instructor at Homeschool Connections, is herself a graduated homeschooler and a homeschooling mother of five. In addition to scholarly pursuits and child rearing, she occasionally strays into fiction, including her epistolary novella, The Letters of Magdalene Montague from Kaufman Publishing 2011 and Chrism Press 2021, and her Gothic novels, A Bloody Habit from Ignatius Press in 2018 and Brother Wolf from Chrism Press in 2021. A former assistant executive editor for Dappled Things, she's an assistant editor for the St. Austin Review, as well as the editor of several Ignatius critical editions of the classics, and has collaborated with other editors to provide footnotes for numerous other works. By night, she reads the Victorians, writes gothic novels, and cares for small children. <laughs> you can find Eleanor at www.eleanorbergnicholson.com, and I'll have that in the show notes for you. Welcome to the program, Eleanor. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy you're here. This is just such a fun topic. There's just not a lot of things in the world better than a really fun book. Oh, I absolutely agree. And this is a fun genre, as you said. Um, I love the Gothic. I also like it to be funny, dark, but also funny. I need the funny. It's a lifeline. <laughs> I couldn't agree. I, I always have felt for years that a good sense of humor is a sign of intelligence and mental health. Like, no matter how bad things are, how anxious or frustrated or anything else you are, if you can manage to crack a grin or be a little ironic or, or ref, you know, reflect a little self-awareness in something, uh, I feel like that that's kind of gives you that that place to stand in, in the strength of the Lord. I'm sure he has an amazing sense of humor. How does, how does humor, why don't we just get right into, uh, define for us what a gothic novel is and, and weave into that. What's the importance of that humor element? Well, a gothic novel, the most critical element for me is that it have the presence of the supernatural, the preternatural, something other beyond the natural world. So it's something outrageous. And it's supposed to uh, hit the protagonist right between the eyes and cause him at some point in the sort of funhouse mirror effect to look inward and see his own monstrousness. So the protagonist of the Gothic novel sees monsters outside and has to have some moral growth. But it is outrageous. So in the history of Gothic novels, there is frequently unintentional hilarity woven in because you have people going around, you know, shrieking there's a very bad novel called the beetle from the victorian period and people weren't quite shrieking aye, aye, the beetle but they sort of seemed it was so bad it was so hilarious i loved that book when i found it in graduate school i don't recommend it though as reading because it's so bad um 
But taking that and also taking the, my own reaction, you know, if, if something scares me, I nervously laugh. Mm-hmm. And that's a release. And that's a relief. Because when you see something that terrifies you, it makes you have to reflect on yourself. And so humility has to come from that. So all that weaves together. Also, I, I just love funny books. Um, <laughs> and why not have everything I want, especially if I'm writing the book myself. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, no, it's a, I, I think it's not always present in the Gothic. There are Gothic novels that take themselves very, very seriously. I don't tend to take them seriously, but, <laughs> but the author certainly did. Yeah. And I think part of the fun of finding that unintended humor, but also finding it where it is intended. I think I think immediately, even though I haven't explored the gothic genre much, but I'm certainly going to, um, is that I look at people like Chesterton and C.S. Lewis and, and they're just their observations about human beings. Their characters tend to elicit moments of recognition uh, in ways that make us laugh. Exactly. Because we can relate to them uh, because they see that man is one tiny little, you know, myself is teeny tiny facing the world, facing God. You, you have, you have to laugh. You have to laugh. (laughs) So true. And I love that you said, oh, I'm just so enchanted by the fact that in the Gothic novel, there's the monster without and the monster within that need for growth that it ignites. Can you say just a little bit more about that? Well, it really shows that we're all monstrous because we're fallen. We're fallen creatures. We tend towards a lesser good than God. We have concupiscence. We require grace. And so does the protagonist of the Gothic novel when properly operating. There are some, as I, there's some bad Gothic novels. There's some Gothic offshoots. I'm not talking about Twilight here, but there <laughs> is the need for moral growth. And one of my favorite aspects of the Gothic is it explores the idea of redemption through violence which you see in non-Gothic authors and Gothic authors alike. But the two who come to mind are Flannery O'Connor and Charles Dickens, two of my favorites. I'm an absolute addict of Charles Dickens. I adore Charles Dickens. Um, And I love to teach him as well because I don't think he's taught properly in most cases. But they both see that the uh, protagonist encountering violence can be radically transformed, radically made new, might not survive, but might be saved, which is much more interesting. Mm. Um, Another really amazing uh, practitioner in the art of redemption through violence is a Gothic supernatural, how does he categorize himself? A supernatural adventure novelist named Tim Powers, who is a practicing Catholic. And his books are, uh, his imagination is so far beyond mine. They're absolutely another addictive author. When I start reading Tim Powers, I know I'm not going to be able to do anything, including laundry, dishes, child care for about three days <laughs> until I'm done. And I might not sleep. Wow. Um, but he does a lot of beating up his protagonist so that he can be radically, radically made new at the end of the book. That's exciting to me. Oh my gosh, I love this because it's another way too of stepping imaginatively with ourselves with our kids in our homeschools into the value of suffering without it being this boring thing they've heard offer it up right how about if it just happens to you and somehow god makes you new in the process and it's it's the distinctly christian message here because of course in the classical understanding you encountered the gods you were exploded or ritually dismembered 
But the Christian God, that encounter means you are radically made new and prepared for union with him, which is what we want to hint at in the redemptive thread of our novels. Not say outright, if you want a preachy articulation, you should get it from a pulpit, not from the pages of a novel. Amen. I, I think that's the problem with so much well-intended Christian and Catholic fiction writing is they start with the agenda and not with the story or the character or that mm -hmm. thing that just ignites their Im imagination to go maybe into a risky place they would not have explored any other w way. Absolutely. My uh, One of my editors at Chrism Press was saying to me the other day, speaking about a manuscript, and she said, and it has a plot. It has a story. <laughs> because that's often left. That's often forgotten. Oh, yeah, exactly. Um, just to sort of, again, uh, sort of put handles on this idea of the Gothic novel, what are some famous examples that we would recognize? The most famous would be Frankenstein and Dracula. There are lots of other ones you might recognize uh, for those literati who are here. The Castle of Otranto hmm. in the late 1700s, that is the first Gothic novel, so-called. Um, but you can see influence across the 19th, uh, the 19th century. So you can see it with the romantics, not just with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, but Lord Byron's personal physician, Polidori, wrote a story called The Vampire. And it he started that the same weekend that Mary Shelley started Frankenstein. They were staying together Percy Shelley, Mary Shelley, Lord Byron, Polidori, and Mary Shelley's sister, with whom Percy Shelley was having an affair. Um, very awkward, very troubled people. Wow. And they started writing ghost stories. And Polidori wrote The Vampire. So this had a huge influence on the emerging vampire facet of the Gothic genre. And then you can see many, and many authors across the period who bring Gothic elements into their novels. The Brontes, Charles Dickens. Wilkie Collins, they're taking pieces of the Gothic, the atmospherics, the sense of uh, the doubling, which can unhinge your protagonist very beautifully. Um, uh, the threat, ancient uh, manorial houses that have corruption behind them, hauntings, scary Catholics. There are a lot of scary papists in these novels. It's a very important point and one of my favorite attributes, actually, in terms of <laughs> tropes. How do you make things have that preternatural, supernatural flair, bring in a Jesuit. You terrify all the English readers um, <laughs> or nuns. So uh, so you can see the influence across the period. Um, and then it sort of bifurcates into detective fiction. You get the sensation novel, which I also am teaching about. Um, so th those are some of the authors. Oh, uh, anyone who's read uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's A Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, heavy gothic influence there um so when you think of stormy uh, atmospherics intense passions and emotions um haunted houses crazy people usually wives usually it's the crazy wife right being exactly. sent from it's always the crazy Janie wife. or hounds of the baskervilles i'm even thinking yeah. sherlock holmes yeah there's a lot in sherlock holmes a lot of the atmospherics and of course one of the clever things that Arthur Conan Doyle was doing, even though he hated Sherlock Holmes, incidentally, because he was a spiritualist and he wanted everyone to read his writings about spiritualism and fairies, in which he believed. Um, but he will take Sherlock Holmes, put him in this gothic setting, and then say, ah, human reason 
and dismiss the Gothic, huh. but he uses it to get there. Right, so well, that's you know, really yeah. interesting. And and the funny thing is the romantics who picked up the Gothic way back at the start of the 19th century, they were reacting to the high rationalism of the enlightenment. So they were saying, no, it can't all be reason. There are dark, sinister things uh, in the mind of man, in the world, but also in the mind of man. So mm. it's, a, I, it's a topic. I love the topic. It's so much fun. I love the genre. Um, find it highly entertaining. As I said, just and Dracula is one of my all-time favorite novels. Oh my gosh. Uh, everybody, uh, before we go any further, Eleanor teaches a bunch of awesome literature courses that are so much fun at Homeschool Connections. I'm going to link to where you can find her. Um, but I just want to mention too, Eleanor, that I even think superhero movies and James Bond and all that link into this gothic heritage by having these creepy supervillains who have some kind of a hidden power. Even though there doesn't tend to be supernatural, um, we do find a, like almost a demonic uh, kind of an impact in the story on the hero. Definitely. And I think that's really important. Um, the portrayal of evil, it's one of the things that sometimes makes parents nervous about their children reading the Gothic. I have a friend, she's a teacher at an all girls Catholic school, and she was teaching Marlowe's Dr. Faustus. And a parent said, no, if my daughter reads that you are teaching her to worship Satan. Oh. And I know it's quite the opposite. We're teaching the consequences of worshiping Satan. Don't make deals with the devil. It does not pay off. Um, and similarly, when you look at evil portrayed in this way, very convincingly, you will be demonstrating to your children the realities of evil without getting too deep into it. I should say, I should have said this at the beginning, I'm easily terrified. Uh, my introduction to the Gothic came via things like Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, and I'm still scared of it. I mean, I'm so easily scared. You mentioned Sherlock Holmes, you know, the speckled band, a snake comes through a grate. I cannot sleep under a grate. I'm terrified of that story. Wow. Very easily scared. But so I'm saying the encounter with the evil, which displays it honestly as something dangerous and embroiling yourself in evil has consequences. I think that's an incredibly valuable lesson that then sets you up to be able to turn and say, but goodness. So reading my goth, my novels and the gothic novels that I love, I feel as if it's not so much the uh, problem of evil. It's the problem of goodness in the face of evil. So the darkness clears and you see the light in a new way. Um, those are the novels that I love, not nihilistic darkness just for darkness sake, um, or the really watered down lameness of Twilight where predators are sexy, which they aren't. They're dangerous. Yeah. So, yeah. That just, it's also bad writing. Just as I believe I said in an email to you, <laughs> deleterious smut. It just uh, <laughs> makes you so annoyed. Um, so that you can get that, you can get that lesson of evil. You can get the lesson of good. And central to my courses, at least I hope, is that even reading something highly entertaining and relatively well written. Dracula is a train wreck, incidentally, you can be teaching how to be good readers. And that is a lost art, how to be a good reader, how to read passionately, how to read deeply. It's just exciting when you see young minds engaging with the text with enthusiasm and with love. Wow. I feel like 
all moms could use a how to read deeply uh, course, just as a refresher, because we tend to catch everything on the fly. But I want to hear about your books. Tell us what has kind of ignited your ideas. I, you know, we've heard a little bit about thematically what excites you about the genre, but take us into your stories. What are they about? Well, uh, I've been writing since a child, so a narrative form has always fascinated me. And I didn't expect to write into the Gothic, find myself in the Gothic, um, not remotely. But I had been reading a great deal, solidifying my ideas from middle school onward, just loving the 19th century and feeling like the timeline was becoming clearer in my head. Then I read Dracula in, uh, when I was an undergraduate. And I, it took a while to persuade myself to read Dracula because I was so afraid of it. Um, and, uh, but I absolutely loved it. And I can remember really vividly one day when I was, you know, lounging on my bed reading because I didn't have children, right? And I was a homeschooler. So what do you do? You lay on your bed all day and read um, or outside <laughs> or wherever you can find a spot, you just curl up. And I was reading along and I started laughing because it was so over the top. <laughs> and then I looked down and I realized I'd taken the dust jacket off. The covers of the book were blood red. And I dropped the book and I had to walk out of the room. I was so creeped out. So I'd gone from laughing at how ridiculous it was. And I walked out of the room. Shake. I couldn't go back to the book until the following day because I was wow. so creeped out by seeing the bloody color on my hands. Um, so that ignited a further fascination with the, with Dracula. I wrote about it as an undergraduate. I wrote about it as a graduate. My That was my graduate thesis was about anti-Catholicism in the British Victorian period. Wow. And Dracula was one of the crowning chapters. Um, then I went on, the first published essay I had was on Dracula by Joseph Pierce in his St. Austin Review. Over time, many things fell into place and I edited Dracula for Ignatius. So it was on my mind. But then I was off on retreat, staying with some Dominican nuns. And I saw a Dominican friar who was an old friend of mine. And he said, oh, you're on retreat, take a nap. And I thought, well, I don't take naps, but I'll try. I wasn't even thinking about Dracula. I was working on something else. And I went to be obedient and went to take my nap. And I lay down and saw an image of Veronica's veil on the wall. And I thought, Catholics could battle vampires because we're weirder than vampires. It looks like a disembodied floating head on a gold background, right? Anybody, no wonder the English thought we were nuts because we look like it. And then I fell asleep and I had a nightmare and I woke up and I wrote the first chapter of A Bloody Habit, which is the story of the upright, forthright, non-emotional, basically agnostic English Englishman who encounters vampires and Dominican vampire slayers. And it's a toss up, which scares him more. Wow. How are you supposed to handle this vampiric reality? He could just say he's crazy, but if what those Dominicans say they are doing, if they, if they actually do that, what is that <laughs> doing to his worldview? <laughs> so it was, I had so much fun with it. Um, my narrator, John Kemp, I basically tortured him for nigh on 400 pages. Maybe it's over 400 pages. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, <laughs> because he freaked out. You need, you need a protagonist who freaks out. And then I finished it. I finally got Dr. Nicholson, my husband, to read it. <clears throat> uh, any, any of you young women who, or young men who wish to write and feel like your, your spouse doesn't read, don't worry. Mine never does until it's published. Um, 
And I told him my theory how vampire victims were just like addicts, and this is how they demonstrate concupiscence. And I had this, it was, it was a pretty elaborate theory. And he listened. And three days later, he came back and said, no, werewolves are. And then he starts pouring out this theory, which happened to coincide with a plot idea that I was developing. And I said, all right, done. Brother wolf, werewolves, here we go. Wow. Got to dive into that instead. Oh my goodness, how much fun. And, and so I, much fun. You know, it also tickles me pink because I was that sensitive, imaginative kid too that if I saw anything on TV or read something scary, it plagued me. It plagued the way I saw every shadow in my room at night. I was so easily frightened. Yeah. And yet as an adult with an awareness of the reality of evil, I cannot, I read books by exorcists. I love all this stuff. And I went to confession once in a t time of what I considered and my, and a priest friend confirmed or believed with me that it was a spiritual warfare thing I was experiencing. I met an African priest in the confessional who, who challenged me and it really helped. He said, do you believe that the power of God is greater than any evil? And I said, yes, father, through my tears. But I think that these stories help with that because of what you're saying about the way the experience shapes up and shapes us and this reality that we are we are in a battle aren't we definitely and actually you're braver than i am i get as close as i have to to exorcism to verify the accuracy of the uh, moral anthropology that i'm up in where i'm operating the hierarchy of demons all those sorts of things i cannot get any closer um, but I've had a similar experience where I, I was in a place of spiritual warfare and one of the priests said, one of the Dominicans I know said, come in, I want to pray minor exorcism over you to free you from oppression, not possession. And I said, all right, that's very nice. No, thanks. He said, <laughs> he said your head isn't going to be spin, isn't going to start spinning, but be brave, come in. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. Even a little bit not exciting, um, which was a relief. Mm -hmm. I don't need God. I love that God comes to me in the sacraments. If I heard a booming voice, it would scare the life out of me. So <laughs> I, I'm, I'm all right. I'm very, my, my spiritual consolations can remain pretty pedantic. I, I like it. <laughs> um, but I, but that's illuminative because you do face, you do face the terrors and the, we are all in this warfare and having a knowledge of our capacity to dismiss evil spirits, what authority we have and the authority structures are important. Um, yeah, very, very critical to our household. Luck luckily, Dr. Nicholson comes back and tells me, oh, you may pray this prayer. I say, thank you for looking that up and talking to exorcists for me because well, all right, just tell me what to do. Uh -huh. um, he he's not easily scared. It's, mm -hmm. it's very nice to have someone who isn't easily scared in yeah. the household. Yeah, I'm the I'm the only one in my household. My husband, my daughter, and my mother-in-law who lives with us all just, you know, they can watch scary, terrible, and gory movies, and it <laughs> don't, they don't bat an eye, and they go right to sleep, and I've got the covers up to my neck. Yeah, always the neck. That's the Dracula impulse. Uh, yes. You know, cover your neck. I When I was pre preparing for one of my Dracula, teaching Dracula one of the times I taught from School Connections, I was so proud of myself. I was researching Victorian burial customs at about <laughs> 10 at night. And I was sitting there typing along. Oh, I'm so brave. I'm so brave. And a bird flew down the chimney. 
right next to me. Oh no. I started screaming, shrieking, waking <laughs> up all the kids. I made Dr. Nicholson explore the entire house. Is like, Sam, look in the closets. And he said, honey, it was a bird. I don't care. You're going to scare everything. Yeah. So the fact that some of my readers have told me that I've scared them, that's just the funniest. That's just hilarious to me. I love it. That's a wonderful irony. <laughs> yeah. 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 So uh, talk to us a little bit about how we can incorporate this into our homeschools. And, and please do tell us how we can use your courses in the midst of this to help us. We really, we want to walk through this with you. Since you've been brave enough, you, you can help us. <laughs> I, lo- I, should, I love, 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 love my homeschool connections courses. The students are amazing. The family interactions. I love homeschoolers. I, you know, as a second generation homeschooler, um, my mom is my biggest fan and I'm definitely hers. So wow. the passionate engagement with literature, if that's something you can do as a family, it is just amazing that my, my love of literature came from my mother. She read to us, she read with us um, and we engaged with the text. So we had passionate opinions. We talked about them. Uh, she read Dracula because I encouraged her to and then <laughs> was able to help me in analyzing it. And then I got my brother's street Dracula and then we were discussing with more people so that it's, it's just contagious. Um, And it, it is part because Gothic falls so much, not entirely along the lines of the canon, but it's like dancing through the canon, if that makes sense. Um, Being, having a rounded reading in the English canon, which I'm also very passionate about um, in the whole Western civilization canon, obviously, um, means engagement in these texts. Um, So you read Jane Austen, who I taught last year. We read everything Jane Austen in two semesters. It was fabulous. It was so reasonable. It was so uh, coherent in its articulation of virtue. I feel like this year is a reaction. (laughs) because I'm doing sensation fiction in the spring. I'm teaching the Brontes and then I'm reteaching Dracula. So I'm doing everything outrageous and emotionally um, unrestrained. (laughs) Um, So those courses are there with homeschool connections, but I, as much as that can be part of the family culture, it's just transformative. And you can tell the students and I have wonderful students. You can tell the ones who are going home and passionately talking about literature or turning around rather not going home. They are home um, Mm -hmm. passionately talking about literature with their parents. It's just so much more fun. And then they come back and say, my mom said this, my dad said this. It's just, that makes my heart so happy. Mm. That's my my happiest parts of my high school homeschooling was literature and my mom and my siblings. Wow. That is such a testament to homeschooling and the freedom that we have, not only to be together and to have your mom be your biggest fan, but um, to have that space to really explore our passions. Yeah, I I love the the homeschool families too. What are some uh, ways that you've learned from them along the way? You, You know, you said they have these great conversations and they come back to you and they say cool things. Anything in particular or general kind of flavors of what comes back to you that that adds to your uh, appreciation for this genre? They, their questions are so on point. So sometimes the way I structure my courses, uh, we open up and, you know, do a sort of a one word review of what we've just read. And then we review each chapter, what happened in each chapter. And then we do close readings and contextual readings. 
in the latter half of the class. In that space, encouraging them, they will ask me questions sometimes that make me realize the need to be an ambassador of the Victorian period or whatever period I'm teaching. I'm competent to teach the entire, from Beowulf probably till about 1930, because then it's sort of hard to convince myself to read things past 1930. <laughs> um, uh, but having them ask the questions that make me say, oh, all right, this is not familiar. This is not familiar. Let me explain it to you. Tiny details, large details. And sometimes I stumble upon things that I have not encountered before. For example, in teaching Woman in White recently, a student asked me about this very small scene that happens at the Paris morgue. And she said, Paris morgue, why was he in the, why is the protagonist in the Paris morgue? Was that a thing? I said, well, it's an identification of the body, but you know, I'm not sure how accessible it would have been. Let me look it up. The Paris morgue was the largest tourist attraction in Paris at the time, sometimes drawing 40,000 people a day. What? It was so weird, but I was reading about trying to understand it, even wrote an article about it, trying to you know unpack this. And it really brought me to reconsider the 19th century aestheticization of death. Death is an art form. It was this weird, weird phenomenon that I don't know that you see anywhere else in history where it was, we see this art form of the dead body. How do we as a people respond to it? Just very odd, very bizarre. Wow. And it seems to me must come from, I don't know, I'm going to blame the Protestant Reformation and the Enlightenment and the loss of grounding in moral anthropology. It's the sort of thing that I feel as if Aquinas would sort of arch an eyebrow and say, what? Mm, what? Yeah. Um, but it was really illuminative of the text. Um and of the authors who said things like, well, I was in Paris and I went to the morgue. Such an odd place. Odd is just not. <laughs> so that, but that was all a student comment and me trying to help the student saying, well, but let me go look deeper. And then when I came back, I said, well, I went deeper and then I couldn't sleep. <laughs> so um, those wow. sorts of moments happen a lot because my students are curious and inquisitive and passionately engaged. They'll they'll fight over, well, oh, I have to stop the class and do a poll because we're so divided which hero is better or whether the hero is even the hero at all. Or oh. why the, oh, hello, hello, thank you. Babe. Yay. I always long for this moment where the baby enters the conversation. Yes. So you yes. briefly got to see my our eldest, Bea, and this is our youngest, Esther. Hello, Esther. Hi, she baby. Said, she says, oh, I'm a 2021 baby. I see a screen and I smile. <laughs> so alarming. <laughs> That's hilarious. It's okay, hilarious. My, I might have to pull my earbuds out. I'll, because she's going to yank them. That's totally fine. I can hear you very well. Yeah. Hi. Yeah. Hey, baby. Yeah. Oh, so I, I love an interview. I love an interview. Yeah. Oh, what a precious girl. And my students even, they've seen my baby. I, my last three babies have been very much in my in my classes. Oh, I'm sorry. We're going to, do you want to eat a little bit? She says, I'm so, well, don't fight it. She, she's like a Victoria, a heroine in a gothic novel. Don't fight the thing that makes you happy and safe. Um, <laughs> right, exactly. That's another trope I weave in. The Victoria, or the heroine of a gothic novel is never kept in the loop 
and is always in serious danger because she lacks information. Uh-huh. So I, if you're a, the heroine of a gothic novel, you're going to faint and you're going to be victimized because nobody will tell you what's going on because they're trying to protect you. <laughs> so that's the sort of thing my students get enthusiastic about and just um, arguing about what, what swooning represents and whether, oh, this was a fun one, a heroine who is increasingly victimized and finally incarcerated in an insane asylum for 11 months and comes out is, you know, freed from it, but has serious mental recovery and emotional recovery. And some of the students, their response was, all right, come on, get over it. But other students were saying, no, stop everyone. Let's actually look at this. We can't just attack her because, oh, she's weak. As I said to them, how would you do 11 months in an insane asylum, unjustly Uh, incarcerated? A Victorian insane asylum. Which were not pretty. They were not pretty. Those sorts of conversations are so enriching. Um, Just they delight me. And I always affirm parents, just so everyone knows, anytime good or bad parenting, I use it as an opportunity to remind high schoolers that your parents are given to you by God. And one of the ways that if you want to be an Austin heroine or a Gothic heroine, you respect the authority and the guidance of those who know more than you do. There you go. Yeah. Probably die assaulted by vampires or something. Not in real life, but. (laughs) I I always tell the girls in my authentic beauty classes that, you know, if they, if I get complaints from them about something at home, I always say to them, you know, there's so much wisdom and life experience behind this. Give it time. You'll appreciate it later. (laughs) You know, maybe you don't have all the information yet. Yes. Yeah. And, and there's a reason one of the virtues is docility, your ability to be taught. Yeah. What happens to the undocile heroine or hero? Bad things. (laughs) Which, which Esther finds amusing. She does because she says gothic novels, they're just silly. We laugh. Uh, But, you know, it it brings us another aspect of gothic novels is angst. And here's a funny point, which brings in family as well. In Brother Wolf, I was working very hard. I thought it was going really well. And I might have been in, you know, month 3000 of a pregnancy. (laughs) And I wrote a whole whole lot. And then after the baby was born, this was our fourth, I handed off the manuscript to my mother and my baby brother. And my brother stopped by after work one day and said, hate to tell you this, you got to get that angst out of there. And I said, what angst? He said, your narrator, my narrator is female and brother Wolf said, she sounds like a cabillion month pregnant woman. You need to get that (laughs) angst out of there. It's too much angst. I love this character. But she's annoying when <laughs> when she's she's not uncomfortable and pregnant, but you were. And when I went back, I thought, oh my goodness, this character is just, you know, suffocating under <laughs> that's too much angst in the wrong place. So I was able to pull that back out and make her as wonderful as she is. And there's the humility of a really good writer too, is to listen to feedback. Not everybody's feedback, the right people's feedback. Well, and being able to cut things out. I'll, I tell my students, be encouraged in your writing. And when I work with them with writing, I often throw out 30% or more of what I write. Uh, when I first started Brother Wolf, I had the wrong narrator. 
and it stalled out. And so I had to play with it and work with it. And then a new narrator emerged and we had a better story. I could not have written that other narrator for hundreds of pages. It would not have been funny. Yeah, (laughs) there you go. And that's an important ingredient. So close us up with any final thoughts on the value of the Gothic novel or how to, you know, bring it to life in your homeschool, anything at all that's left for us. Just the encouragement that everything that these parents are doing is just such a blessing to your children. And in that engagement with literature, you're, you're making them, uh, oh dear, oh dear, you're making them annoyed. You don't like these final thoughts. I'm sorry. Um, (laughs) By making them, oh dear, you're fulfilling the classical understanding what literature is supposed to do. It's supposed to instruct, but it's also supposed to delight. And when they see you delighted and engaged and amused, (laughs) she's like, these are the worst final thoughts ever. You're giving them a gift that will entertain them and sustain them so that, you know, they're going to face their own monsters in life, outward and inward. And the more loving tools with which you can provide them, the better they'll be able to negotiate that and to respond to the grace needed to ward off vampires. Oh, and by the way, just if anyone's wondering, snakes don't kill vampires. They just immobilize them. They do need an exorcist. The stake isn't enough. You don't know what you want. But you know it's not a stake. It's not a stake. It's not enough. So whenever you see a movie and they kill a vampire with a stake, tell yourself it's that's nonsense too. It doesn't work. All right. I love it. I love it. This is like the most fun ending we've ever had to an episode. Eleanor, thank you so much. And we're going to come back again. Eleanor's going to talk to us in more depth about Victorian novels. Please reach out to her at eleanorborgnicholson.com. It's in the show notes, but I'll spell it for you. E-L-E-A-N-O-R-B-O-U-R-G-N-I-C-H-O-L-S-O-N.com. And uh, again, links to where you can find her courses. Thank you again. This was just so much fun. Thank you for having me and with your for your patience with with me because apparently I'm a disappointing person. <laughs> oh, Esther just doesn't appreciate you yet. She'll get there. <laughs> yeah. Although I should say she's she's my second biggest fan. The Aww. others, well, you know, you know that mother gig. They love you, and then they articulate their ideas about you. Right? They go. They they make another cognitive leap, and suddenly you look different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah thank heavens that daddy's around be, yeah we can take turns being liked we need a gothic novel on that theme all right everyone thank you so much for being with us for this delightful conversation with professor nicholson our our other wonderful nicholson at homeschool connections uh this amazing couple um please stay tuned for our short feature coming right up Hi, I'm author AJ Catapan. Welcome to Books and Blessings, a place where I get to share with you some of my favorite books for Catholic teens and tweens. Perhaps you are familiar with the Christmas Carol, Good King Wenceslas. But do you know much about this patron saint of Czechs? I'll admit I knew almost nothing about Good King Wenceslas, whose original name was Prince Václav, 
until I read the book Treachery and Truth by Katie Huth Jones, available from Pauline Press. Treachery and Truth is an example of historical fiction, meaning that author Katie Huth Jones did her research to learn as much factual information as she could about this saint, but since many details are missing, she had to use her imagination to bring the story to life. The story is told from the perspective of Poitavin, a 12-year-old boy who was sold into bondage to pay his father's debts after both of his parents died. Poitavin ends up being purchased as a servant by the cruel Duchess Dragomira, a pagan who ruled Bohemia during the 10th century and outlawed the Christian religion. While Dragomir is cruel, Poitavin soon learns that her son, Prince Václav, is not. Prince Václav, or as he was later called, Good King Wenceslas, was introduced to the Christian religion by his grandmother. And although his mother has made the religion a crime punishable by death, Václav refuses to give it up. Since Poitavin is not much younger than the prince, Duchess Dragomir decides to make Poitavin a personal servant to Prince Václav. And Poitavin soon learns about the one true God from the prince and his priest friends. In fact, he shares with Poitavin his desire to return Christianity to Bohemia once he is of age and can inherit the throne from his mother. Tension mounts throughout the story as Poitavin overhears plots from Dragomira and her younger son, Boleslav, to make sure Václav never succeeds with his plan. Treachery and Truth is appropriate for both teen and preteen readers. Author Katie Huth Jones' vivid prose brings this tale of a brave and daring prince to life in such a way that you don't even need to be a fan of medieval history to imagine how dangerous things were for Poitavin and his master, Prince Václav. I also invite you to check out a special Christmas short story called The Christmas Lights, written by me and several other Catholic authors from CatholicTeenBooks.com. The Christmas Lights is a progressive short story that we wrote as a team, with each author adding on the next part of the story before passing it along to the next contributor. It is available on Kindle for only 99 cents, and the proceeds go to Cross Catholics, which organizes boxes of joy for children each Christmas. Thanks for joining me on Books and Blessings. Be sure to find me online on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or on my website, ajcatapan.com. Until next time, happy reading. And that's our show for today. Our program is sponsored by homeschoolconnections.com. Be sure to subscribe to Homeschooling Saints and leave us an honest review. God bless you and thank you for joining us.